Indeed, precious Lord, we, we need your help, Lord. As we look at your word, Lord, we, we cannot come with casualness and irreverence and presumption, Lord, but we pray that we would come with humility and an earnest desire, Lord, to learn from you. And Lord, it says in your word that you store up sound wisdom for the upright. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us your word this morning, that we may learn more, Lord, more about you, more about your son, father, and indeed how we are to honor you as a church. Please be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James 2, starting at verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? <clears throat> are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. This is the word of our God. Well, in these verses, verses 1 through to verse 9, James addresses a particular sin, the sin of favoritism or the sin of partiality. Now, it's important that we understand there's a, a right kind of favoritism in a sense and a wrong kind of favoritism. Now, it's, it's good to have favorites in certain things. For example, if you have a favorite Thai restaurant that you go to or a favorite private health fund that you're with. Otherwise, you just pick whatever one. We all have friends when we had to choose those. We didn't just, you know, walk out of the door and hope for the best that someone will befriend us that day. No, they're, they're all examples of what we call partiality or, or favoritism. We, we pick and choose, as the kids were saying before, something we prefer. That's an okay, okay kind of favoritism. And in fact, in some circumstances, it would be wrong to not have favourites. For example, if you're married, you'd better have a favourite spouse. Well, there's a problem, a very big problem. But the partiality here in James chapter 2 is a sinful kind of partiality, a sinful kind of favouritism. I'm going to use those two words interchangeably, partiality and favouritism. And the context of our passage in verses 21 through to verse 25 of James chapter 1, James is making sure that the believers that he's writing to are not just those who hear the word, but do it. 
They don't just say, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe it. But they actually do what it says and, show, and actually show that they do believe it. They're not to be forgetful hearers, but they're to be doers. And in verses 26 and verse 27, just before chapter 2, James gives some very specific ways, and we looked at that last time I preached, restraining your tongue when you speak, visiting orphans and widows and those who are, and taking care of those who are less fortunate than yourself, and keeping yourself from the pollution of this sinful world. And so here, as we continue this flow on from chapter 1, James addresses this very particular sin, the sin of partiality in the church. But what is this partiality? Well, it's treating certain people with respect and others with disrespect based on worldly externals, worldly measures of value. Things like riches, appearance or beauty, rank or social standing or influence, the job that you have, the cultural background, whatever it is, the world judges by these things. And what James is getting at here and what we're going to look at today is that we're not to judge by those things, but we're to judge with the way God judges, what God values, and that's really important. Because it's not wrong to show honour to someone, but why are we showing honour to that person? Because the world shows honour to certain people based on things they want to show honour for. And what's the consequence of showing some people honour? Does it therefore mean that we despise someone else? And they're things that we want to think through as we look at this passage. Well, what's the main teaching of this passage? The main doctrine. The believer is not to show favoritism to others based on worldly standards, such that one person is honoured and the other is dishonoured. Let me repeat that again. The believer is not to show favoritism to others based on worldly standards, such that one person is honoured and another person is dishonoured. And as we go through our passage, the first point in verse 1 is the charge of impartiality. Verses 2 to 7, a specific example of the rich and the poor. And verses 8 and 9, that the law of God promotes love and condemns this partiality. But let's have a look. Verse 1. Let your eyes have a look at verse 1. Chapter 2. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Now this verse is the foundation, if you like, for the eight verses that follow afterwards. And there's one command there. It says, don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism. Now, who's he, who's he talking to? He says, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And that can actually be better translated as those who hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a distinction I want to get at here, and I'll show you why. If you remember a number of weeks ago, Joel, he's been preaching through the book of Jude, and a number of weeks ago, he went through verse 3, where it says, we are to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And what is the faith? Well, in the Bible, the word faith is a couple of different meanings, but the word faith, there's, there's a subjective faith, and that's the faith that we all have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust in Christ. We believe all that the Bible says is true, and we trust in Christ for salvation. That's a subjective faith. But when it comes to the faith, that's the, the, the truth that we believe in. 
And so as Joel pointed out a few weeks ago, the faith that we're defend, right, to defend and to contend for, that's the truth of God's word. And so when it says here, as believers, it, it's literally those who hold the faith, right? Not just those who believe in Christ, so that is true, but it's talking about the truth that we hold to and believe in. Because if we think about the faith as the truth that we believe in, we're all equal in that regard. We're not trying to say, oh, do you have more faith or less faith? It's the faith, the truth of God's word. We all have it. We're equal. And so what James is getting at here is he's actually saying, you've all got the same, the faith, right? You've all got the same truth of God's word. It's not that some of you go, well, I've got some higher knowledge, and you just, you don't know as much. No, you've all got the same in God's word. So therefore, you shouldn't show favoritism. 2 Peter 1 verse 1 says, as Peter says, To those who received the same kind of faith as ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Or Jude 3, as Joel preached, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. We all have the same truth. Therefore, we should not show favoritism. But who is at the center of this objective faith? Well, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it say? Of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the word our there, O-U-R, our. He's not just the Lord Jesus of some believers and not others. We all share the same Christ. And we don't just share a little bit of Christ and others get more of Christ. No, we all share the same Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, we're not to show favoritism. Well, why is Christ glorious? I don't think we have enough time on this, in a lifetime even, or 10,000 lifetimes to speak of Christ's glory. But let's think of a few things about why Christ is glorious when it comes to his people and how he shows honour and love for all his people. Well, this, this one way that Christ's glory shows forth is that he left heaven, took upon himself a human nature to redeem all his people. All of them, every single one of them. Hebrews 2 says this, Therefore, since the children, that's speaking of God's people there, the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their life. So Christ took upon himself our human nature so that he would redeem every single one of his people. Not just some of them, all of them. All of them. And he died for all his people too. John 10 says this, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep, speaking all of all his people, not just some of them, not just those who were richer or those who, who knew more, whatever it is, whatever you want to tack onto that, you can't tack anything onto that. 
It's his sheep, all of them, that he lays down his life for. And Christ is also united to all his people and shares in their suffering. If you remember in the book of Acts, when, when Saul has been persecuting the churches on the road to Damascus, and then the Lord Jesus appears to him in all his glory, such that Saul is struck blind, what does Jesus say? In response to Saul persecuting God's people, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That's a union that Christ has with all his people. That when they suffer, right, when they're mistreated, whoever is mistreating them is mistreating Christ himself. Indeed, the eternal welfare of Christ's people is always on his heart. And that's one of the most beautiful things about Christ. And so when it comes to this, the, the, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, in light of Christ's glory, how could we possibly show favoritism? If Christ cares for all his people and shows honour even to the lowliest of them, how could we ch- treat them any different? How could we show them any less love, as it were? And if you think about it, while on earth... Christ wasn't glorious outwardly, was he? He didn't come in this super halo and and his clothes shining bright, though they were at the Mount of Transfiguration. But by and large, the scripture says in Isaiah 53 that he had no majesty or appearance, that we should look upon him or, or be attracted to him. And yet he was infinitely glorious at the same time. So in light of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, Do not show favoritism. Do not show favoritism. But there's an example that James gives in verses 2 to 7. Have a look with me at verses 2 through to verse 7. And as I read, again, I want you to think about the rich man and the poor man. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Actually, we'll, we'll stop there and read the rest as we go on. So there are two characters in, the, in these verses. There's a, the rich man and the poor man. And the rich man has a gold ring and fine clothes. In fact, the word fine is, is, is this idea of bright clothes. Like they're shining forth. We look at them and go, wow, look at that. And then there's a poor man and he comes in in shabby clothes. Can you imagine that happening right now? Walking through that door, two men. One comes in in a nice suit, slick back hair. He's pretty good looking. He's he's courteous and kind. He's got in a very nice suit, very polished shoes. You look at his watch, it's a very nice watch. When he smiles, it's a million-dollar smile. He's got the best cologne. And we go, that looks like the kind of guy who belongs here. And then after, after him, right after him, comes in this, this beggar 
in shabby clothes. His hair's all matted together with grime and grease. His beard's just scraggly. His clothes, they're just torn in different places and he's wearing a mismatch of stuff. You know what? He stinks. That smell, that odour of an unwashed body for weeks on end. And when you get near them, you just, you recoil in horror. Who would you invite to sit next to you? Who would you talk to? Who would you feel more comfortable to talk to? Who would you welcome? Would you treat them differently, do you think? Who's more worthy of the kingdom of God? Who? That's what James is speaking about here. But what does each person get? Verse 3, have a look at me. The rich man. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. Right? So what does this good man get? He gets, uh, sorry, this good man. This rich man get, he gets special attention. He gets honour. He gets a good seat. In, in those days in the, in the synagogue, uh, there would be good seat, There would be a limited number of seats and there'd be good seats. Right? They'd be kind of up there, right, in the action. And then you'd have a few seats around the outside, and the rest was kind of standing or sitting space. So there were the prime spots. Prime spots. Remember the Pharisees? The scripture says they love to walk around in long robes, they love being respectfully greeted in the marketplace, they love the chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. Jesus himself says this. They wanted those special seats. That's what they wanted. But what about the poor man? Have a look, verse 3. But say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What does a poor man get? The opposite. He gets little or no seat at all. He has to stand or not even a seat. He has to sit on the Dirt on dust of the ground. He gets dishonor. Because the problem here is not riches or poverty. That's not the issue. Because God gives some people more and he gives some people less. That's not the issue. Or even where they ended up sitting. Because some will get the good seats and some won't. That's just the way it is. But it goes to the motive of the heart. When you see these people, do you discriminate and base your treatment of them on something about them and how they look? In verse 4, what does it say? Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This word discriminated means to pass judgment on or or to separate or to distinguish between. Now, discernment is a good thing. But we're to discern between what is right and wrong. What is good and evil? What is truth and error? That's a good discernment. We're to judge with good, righteous thoughts. That's what God judges on. But what is the standard by which you are judging? If you remember back in the Old Testament, when Samuel the prophet, he went to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be king. And you may remember it well. And son after son came along. Surely this one 
Surely this one, like he's tall, he's good looking. Surely this one. That's why Saul was, the people like Saul as king, because he was a head taller. He looked the part. And what did God say to the prophet? He said, and you know it well, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So what do you judge on? What's your standard by which you judge people? The world standards or God's word? So the favoritism of this passage has to do with despising certain believers based on worldly standards. But why is this silly? Have a look with me. Verse 5. This is the first reason. Verse 5. God's choice of of whom he gives an inheritance to. Have a look with me. Verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Who did God choose for his kingdom? Well, it says the poor of this world, right? Or poor in the eyes of the world. 1 Corinthians 1 says there are not many chosen, there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. And you can add from this passage, not many rich. Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's hard. It's not impossible. All things are possible with the Lord. But if those who make up God's kingdom are often poor, why, why should our choice be any different? Why should our choice be any different? Are we wiser than God? Do we think that the best people for his kingdom are the richest or most influential? God is not a God of partiality. Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, it says this, For Yahweh your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and the fearsome God who does not show partiality or accept the bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows love for the sojourner by giving him food and clothing. God doesn't bestow his favours because people are better than others. Because they're greater. I mean, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, three chapters earlier, it says, he said to his people, I didn't set my love upon you because you were greater in number than any of the other peoples of the earth. So don't presume that you were chosen because you were greater. No, far from it. God loves to choose the weakest, poorest, helpless, most helpless. Indeed, he gets all the glory, doesn't he? But what are they chosen to be? Rich in money? No. Have a look at me. It says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised those who love him. So what did he choose them to? He chose them to be rich in faith. That's what God values. That's what God values. Faith, a belief a belief and trust in God and his word. All God's people have believed that God's word is true. They believe the gospel is true. And they're trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. Because what does it mean to be rich ultimately? To be rich means to have an abundance of something that people value. 
isn't it? It's, that's all it means. To be rich is to have something in abundance that people value. It can be money, it can be, you know, Bitcoin for some, it can be possessions, trips, whatever it is, right? What does God value? What does he value? What does it say? To be rich in faith. That's what he's chosen them to. The world values money and possessions. God values faith. Many of God's people may be physically poor in the eyes of the world. but They're rich in faith. They're rich. They're spiritually rich in God's eyes. But what else? What else? How does it describe God's people? It says that they love God. They love him. If you've got your Bibles, go back over to chapter 1, verse 12. You'll notice a very similar way that James is phrases. Blessed is the man, chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So in chapter 1, verse 12, there's a crown promised to those who love him. And here in chapter 2, there's an inheritance promised to those who love him. Can you see the connection? God's people love him. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because many of God's people will be poor, but all will be rich in faith. There will be those who love God, and there will be those who inherit when Christ comes back. All of them, not just some of them, every single one of them. So how can we show favoritism? See what James is getting at here? He's laying on layer upon layer upon layer. He's removing every excuse that we have. But what's the second reason why we're not to, why it's silly to show favoritism? Have a look with me. The behavior of the rich verses 6 and 7. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? <clears throat> Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? And at that time, James is writing, this is what the rich were doing. This is how the rich were behaving. They were exploiting or literally oppressing God's people, exercising their power and influence for evil on God's people. And not just you know, leaving the job of, of, of hurting God's people to others. No, it says they were dragging them to the courts. Dragging you into court. Not just to look at the court and just go, wow, what a good court. No, to be judged, condemned for their faith. They were handing God's people over themselves because they delighted in oppressing God's people. In James chapter 5, in chapter 5 of this book, of this letter, the rich, it says, stole wages from the poor while they themselves lived in luxury and pleasure. And they condemned and they killed the righteous. And James says, these are the ones you want to honour? Above the poor? It doesn't make sense. But not only are they treating you bad, they're treating Christ even worse. What does it say? Have a look at me. Verse 7, are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? They're blaspheming Christ's name. Why? 
Why? Why would you show them honour and the poor man you're despising? doesn't make sense. Stop judging on the the same way that the world does. I mean, our names can be dragged through the dirt, but Christ's name? Our names are worthy of that. His is not. What James is saying is, why are you judging based on worldly externals? Because if riches are everything, look at what the rich people are doing. Do not show favoritism. But we see in verses 8 and 9 that the law also condemns partiality and promotes love. Have a look at me in verse 8 and 9. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, we're only going to touch on this briefly because the law of God is actually treated a lot in the next section of James. But this is the, the last reason why James is saying you should not show favoritism. So you shouldn't show favoritism because our common faith, right, the faith, the truth of God's word that we all share, a common salvation. We all share the same glorious Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we all share the kindness of Christ shown towards us. We're all, we all share the, the, the wonderful, loving choice of God in choosing us, not because we're rich or famous or anything like that. <clears throat> and, when, and those whom the world elevates are often the ones oppressing God's people. But this is the last reason, because it breaks God's law. It breaks God's law. Simple as that. It's sin. It's sin. The second portion of the Ten Commandments, you've got the Ten Commandments, and the first four go under the heading, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the last six are summarized in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of these last six, James is saying here, you shall love the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. If you show partiality in a worldly way, You are not loving your neighbour as yourself. Would you want to be despised? Would you want to be mistreated? I don't think so. Leviticus Leviticus 19 says this. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbour fairly. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. So if you show favoritism, either to the poor or to the rich, to the great or to the small, in your judgment or whatever else is we're about to look at, you're breaking God's law and it's sin. Let's have a think now of how this applies to us as a church. How do you view people? What are the lenses by which you look at others? 
What's the standard by which we measure people when how, in, in terms of how we treat them? Because that's what James is getting at here. Is your thinking stuck in the, in the world's thinking? <clears throat> is your mind being conformed to the pattern of this world or is it being transformed by the renewing of your mind with the Scriptures? And I want to think of some ways that we might be prone to favouritism now because our context is a little bit different. <clears throat> we don't have prominent seats in church like they did in the synagogue. In fact, sometimes people don't sit at the front because they don't want to be you know, looked at maybe more. And in some respects, there's less inequality in our country that between the rich and the poor. There's less inequality than there would have been back then. But what do we judge by? What, what standard do we judge by? Because our 21st century prejudices can be formed from, from us as children growing up, by, maybe by our parents, schooling, our culture, whatever it is, our workplaces. And sometimes these standards by which we judge people kind of creep in. Now we need to be aware of them. And I'm going to go through four of them and how we sometimes elevate some and, and despise others or look down, look down on others. Well, the first is financial status. <clears throat> this can actually go both ways. Sometimes we treat really well the rich as they did in those days and look down on the poor. But sometimes now it's flipped. We go, oh, this rich person, arrogant probably. Oh, look at them with all their money, particularly in Australia with tall poppy syndrome, whatever it is, right? We go, the poor person, we need to show such kindness to them. But I don't have, I don't have time for that other person. So sometimes we judge the opposite way to our passage here on financial status. We elevate one and we look down on the other. What about appearance or beauty? Maybe we look at someone and... Maybe they're good-looking and we go, oh, they're pretty good. Maybe they'd be more worthy of the kingdom of heaven, whatever it is. They're well-groomed. Or maybe we look down on those who are not as good-looking. Maybe they are what we would term ugly. Or they're crazy-looking. For example, their hair. Or they've got a mark on their face. or Whatever it is, right? Our world often judges people in fact, sometimes they consider them less worthy of life because they're missing a limb or they're in a wheelchair or mentally handicapped or whatever it is. What about rank and social standing? <clears throat> or if they're influential, maybe they can do more for the kingdom. I remember this happened, I don't know how long ago it was, but with Kanye West, if you remember. And it was a whole big crazy hoo-ha about Kanye West and he's become a Christian that's great because he's got so much influence, he's got millions of followers and it'd be great for the kingdom. <clears throat> Maybe that didn't turn out so well, did it? Or Maybe if they're a nobody, maybe they can't really do much for the kingdom. Let me tell you, it's often the nobodies in history who have done, whom the Lord has used more than the rich. In fact, God uses all his people. In all their ways. But do we elevate someone who's influential? And we, do we look down on, on someone else? Or what about a job? There are some jobs that we, we lift up, maybe doctors and teachers and that kind of thing. And then other jobs, like lawyers and real estate agents and salespeople, and maybe we look down on those people. We shouldn't. But we, do we judge people based on these standards? Maybe you've got your own standards. 
that have that you unconsciously even, sub, sorry, I shouldn't say unconsciously, subconsciously judge people by. And I want to say this, I don't believe our church as a whole shows much favoritism in the way, in a, in a bad way that James is describing. I praise God and I thank God for all of you and the kindness and love that you show each other. And even as elders that we talk about, the unity that we have in Christ and the lack of divisions. And so I don't think as a church we struggle with this as, as others may. But we must always watch out for it. It always creeps in unawares as a church and on an individual level as well. So whom do you welcome and talk to on Sunday mornings? Is there anyone you overlook on purpose? I'm not talking about accidentally. You know, you walk past someone, they, they feel like you didn't wave at them. No, the thing, people you overlook, remember, it comes to the motives. People you overlook on purpose because you're not as comfortable with them. Or there's something about them that just, it's just, I just, I just can't handle it. I don't like it. I'm not comfortable with it. Whatever it is. But maybe you're thinking this objection, does this mean that therefore I can't have people in church that I'm closer to? Of course not. We all have people that we're closer to, people we just click with a little bit more, people we might just naturally gravitate towards. But what this is getting at is not that we gravitate towards certain people, it's that we elevate some and despise others as a result, that we treat people differently based on our own standards. Well, think about this. What if a... Famous preacher from overseas walked in. He visited and he preached for us all. Would you treat him better than you treat Joel? Would you? Sometimes we have this problem where this celebrity Christian culture where we, we elevate certain preachers so much and we go, Whew, the ground on which they're standing is holy ground. Last I checked, that was only where God stands, as it were, where God is. And we treat these exalted preachers with more honour than our own regular faithful church pastors. And we have to guard against this thinking. <clears throat> Jesus said that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven was the slave of all. And those who humble themselves before him and before others. And so we have to think about these ways that maybe this favouritism creeps in and, 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 and influences our thinking. So what must we do to combat this? What must we do? Well, first thing is rejoice that God chose you. Rejoice that God chose you. And if you realize your own sin, you'll marvel that he even chose you in the first place. Because he chose you, brethren, to be rich in faith. He changed your heart so that you would love him. And he chose you indeed for an eternal inheritance. Rejoice in that, that he chose you, chose me. Always remind yourselves of these things that James has gone through that unite us. The truth of God's word, our common salvation, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. God's loving choice of all of us and the kindness that he shows and the honor that he shows to all his people. Remind yourselves always of these things. Remind yourselves of our unity that we all have. 
what must we also do? Show honour. Let's do it. Show honour to all God's people. Make a conscious effort to do it. Romans 12 verse 10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honour. That's what love is. It's an earnest desiring and a seeking to be devoted to one another, to serving one another, to giving preference to one another in honour. Brethren, if you're here this morning and you do feel despised, you do feel neglected or that others overlook you, take heart, for God does not. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, he does not despise you. He does not overlook you. I mean, God sent his only son for you. He has your eternal welfare on his heart. If you do feel discouraged, take heart. Remember God's love in Christ Jesus for you. And pray and ask the Lord to help you persevere. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, remember God is not a God of partiality. It doesn't matter how many things you try and do to merit enough before God for you. You can't. God is not a God who is partial. He doesn't look on the things that you do or or how much you give up or how much wealth you have or how many prayers you've uttered, whatever it is. God isn't moved by those things. You, You cannot merit salvation. He's not a God of partiality. He doesn't care about those things. Indeed, other religions of the world, they try to appease their gods. Don't they? You can't appease this God. In fact, there's only one to whom God shows partiality towards, and that's his son. And so if you want God to show you his kindness and his grace and his favor, you have to be in his son by faith. You need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. And God will show you his kindness and his mercy and his love. Let's come before our God in prayer. Let's pray. Precious Lord, we thank you so much for your kindness and your mercy shown to all your people. Not because they're rich or poor or or influential or, or not, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us here to to never cause divisions or or to, to, to elevate some and despise others because of our own standards. But, Lord, we pray that indeed we would see the beautiful unity that we have in Christ and in your gospel and in your choice, Lord, of us unto salvation. Oh, precious Lord, we pray that indeed we would be marked by unity and love And, Lord, that we would treat one another with honour, every single one of us. Please, Lord, you're the glory in the name of your Son. And, Lord, we pray for those here who do not know Christ. And, Lord, we we pray, please, grant them faith. Help them to see, Lord, that their, their best deeds are like filthy rags in your sight. Lord, that they cannot do anything to make you partial towards them. But, Lord, that they must be in your Son. 
They must trust in your son. And Lord, we pray that indeed you would help them to despair of all their best works, all their greatest sins, Lord. We pray that they would despair of all of them and that they would trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Oh, Lord, please be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.